Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Varadi, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, we're taking flight and getting super scary by exploring the world of comic books with today's guest. Joining us today is the Eisner Award-winning writer behind such titles as Torso, Manhunter, Wonder Woman 77, and the recent Harvey and Ivy Meet Betty and Veronica. His beautifully curated anthology Love is Love benefited victims of the Pulse Orlando tragedy and received national attention for bringing together creators for a worthy cause. Please welcome to the show, the prolific Mark Andreco. Wow, I sound almost impressive in that. <laughs> I should have you go to open the doors at every party I go to and just do that little... Oh, you know, I think that it's it's... Uh would be nice to have people to uh, introduce us as we enter a room. Well, we should have barcodes on us so you can use your phone and... I feel like it's coming. And maybe not the way that we want, though. Uh, anyway, thank you for joining me today. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, why don't we kick things off uh, the same way I kick off every show, and it's with the same first question I ask every guest. And uh, it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Like, what's your entry point? Why do you think horror has a draw to people? What's the, you know, what's the relationship? But uh, just why horror? Well, I think uh, for a bunch of reasons, and I'm sure people have said this before, but horror is a way to test yourself in a safe way, how scared you are, but knowing that ultimately it's not going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that kids either, when you're little, you either get attracted to horror or you decide you don't like horror. And I remember being three and a half years old and seeing Nosferatu on the TV and just thinking, wow, that that's kind of scary, but it's kind of cool. And I've just ever since really enjoyed horror. And I'm glad to see that it's coming back in a way that isn't torture porn and sadism. You know, the success of things like It are, have, have, are really great because I think horror is not about sadism and torture and pain. Horror is about being scared and a mood. And I think that uh, we're getting back to that, which is nice. And I think it's interesting because uh, for a lot of fans, you said it's a way of testing yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that for people who feel a sense of otherness, there is uh, there is a need to test ourselves with with the material that we ingest. Like, you know, what can we take in the world? Sure. Uh, and also escapism to some degree. Oh, absolutely. And there's also the whole thing of the monster inside. You know, that that's not as much of a thing for the younger generations, but... Growing up as a gay kid in the 80s, you know, when the AIDS crisis was happening, there was, you know, there was a lot of a lot of lack of knowledge that made a lot of gay people much more self-loathing than possible and had this hidden life. You know, I think it's why horror and superhero fiction appeal to gay people because of the who, who am I really? Am I accepted? Am I ostracized from society? You know, pitchforks and torches were, you know, torches were actually used during the AIDS crisis. You know, Ryan White's house got burnt down and right. stuff like that. So there is a there is a reaction to that. Now, you mentioned that you early on connected when you saw Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, as I was listing your credits, you are firmly entrenched in the world of comics and mm -hmm. superheroes. Uh, did you attach to comics early on as well? Yeah, yeah. I started reading comics when I was like four. My older cousin read them. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you copy the people around you. And I learned to read from Spider-Man and Sesame Street. So I have to ask because, you know, I have talked to you before at social events and things, and we, we have discussed your interest in writing horror mm -hmm. and uh, your writing in the world of comic books. Do you think for a certain group of people, there is a correlation between horror and heroes in terms of identity stories? Sure, absolutely. Because a lot of the, a lot of 
traditional horror movies are, you know, King Kong is considered a horror movie, but King Kong is a, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, King Kong is the hero. Godzilla is a hero. You know, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the Frankenstein monster. You know, the, the even the Wolfman, that's something that he doesn't control. That's something he doesn't want. It's different than like a vampire or a mad scientist or someone evil. It's people that are cursed with things. And the tragic hero, you know, the, the one of the best lines, last lines ever of a movie, it was Beauty That Killed the Beast. You know, so there's a lot of that resonance that I think is really, really important about antiheroes and misjudging. And you can kind of see Spider-Man was kind of the first bridge between horror and superheroes, not in the sense of Spider-Man was ever horrific, but he was a superhero doing good things, but was a villain in the eyes of the public. Oh, right. That's interesting. You know, J. Jonah Jameson was always like, he's a menace, he's a menace, he's a menace. So Spider-Man never got any appreciation. He did good things because he was a good person, not because of the accolades. And that's a lot of way that that, that transposes the misunderstood quality of a lot of villains or a lot of um, monsters in horror fiction. It transcends that. It kind of bridges that gap that there was a mixture of both. That's interesting. And I was going to ask you later, kind of in a cheeky way, if you thought that in some capacity are superheroes uh, in drag. But what you your discussion about identity. I think it's the opposite of drag, actually. I think it's for especially for a gay audience. Using Spider-Man because he's the primary example of this. This was the first one where he had, you know, it wasn't about him saving the world. It was about him fighting the Green Goblin and he had to pay a house payment and he was late for school and his aunt was sick. Right. Spider-Man was really who Peter Parker was. Clark Kent is really Superman. Batman, there's Bruce Wayne's not a really interesting guy. He, no. he that's most that's his mask. So the mask that gay people have to had to wear traditionally in the real world. They were, we did think of ourselves as the freedom. You know, when Spider-Man puts on the mask, he's more, more free than he ever was as Peter Parker, but that's truer to who he is. So I think that, that that's very important in, I think that most, in most cases, it's the opposite of drag. It's, free, it's, it's accoutrements on the outside, but it's actually freer in who you really are. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I have always felt like Batman is, is really Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne's just a boring person. Yeah, Bruce Wayne is just a mask because he was, he was that tragedy stunted his growth, you know, because it's like, um, you know, somebody said, you know, why doesn't Bruce Wayne spend his billions of dollars on the Gotham City Police Force and free public school instead of putting on a costume and dressing up? Because he's really, really damaged by something that, you know, and that happens to everybody. We all have traumas in our lives that kind of define the course of our lives. Most of them are generally when we're young because we're still forming our own sense of identity. But, you know, you talk to anybody about the most tragic thing in their life and ask them, how did that pivot their life? And it does pivot people very substantially. Right. Do you think, and I've just always wanted to ask someone in in the world of comics this, is the difference between Bruce Wayne and his rogues gallery money? Because I think that he's not mentally well. Oh, no, he's absolutely not mentally well. If if I had billions and billions, equivalent of hundreds of billions of dollars... I would give money to the police force. I would, you know, I would, I would be on my private island and with Henry Cavill and I would be, I would be supporting these organizations. Absolutely. You know, it's just, it's just that, um, you know, there's always the, the veneer of genre allows stories to be more specific to people. You know, the right. example I always use is my so-called life was a great show, but it was so achingly real, right. that, you know, in 30 something was so achingly real. People didn't want to work 40 hours a week to almost lose their house and not have health insurance to watch a show about people working 40 hours a week. But I always said if, if 30 something was set on the moon, if it was moon based 30 something, it would still be on. It's why Buffy was so successful, whereas my so-called life wasn't because people don't the average person doesn't want to watch their life 
for real. Right. But when you have Buffy sleep with Angel and he loses his soul, that's the specific metaphor of you sleep with your boyfriend and he doesn't call you back. And somehow that that layer of genre allows it to be more specific and more personal to the person because it's not achingly real. It's counterintuitive, but it's a fascinating thing to see. No, it's true. And, you know, we've often discussed with many guests on the show how there is this thread of genre being, in a way, more powerful than many modes of storytelling because it can do exactly what you're saying. It can take something that we don't necessarily want to confront when placed bare. Yeah, absolutely. But if you mask it as a monster, if you mask it as the the vigilante, if you, you know, make the Babadook it's a symbol of anxiety and depression. I thought he was the symbol of gay pride. Well, that's uh that's That was after the fact. That was after the fact. It was kind of funny how um the the creature in its way was something that, you know, was repression breaking free. Yeah. And they meant it as anxiety, but in Trump's America, I guess that could be a queer, <laughs> queer life. Uh, anxiety is just the the daily thing here. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's. I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired of being angry. The boat is sinking. Why is no one getting on the life raft? <laughs> yeah, I didn't watch the State of the Union. I have to confess. I f- I feel like if I wanted to go and have a, you know a conversation with someone telling me everything was great and it's not, I would just like have dinner with my grandma or something. Well, it's funny because of Trump and all the anxiety. You know, you the horror generally is reflective of whatever the social issue of the day is. You look at Night of the Living Dead, Mm -hmm. and that was very resonant because of the casting of an African-American lead, and also because we were seeing all our boys come back from Vietnam in body bags. That was a reaction to that. You look at Fatal Attraction, which is arguably a horror movie in the 80s, AIDS. Right. And you look at it right now, a a demonic clown ruining our lives. (laughs) And it's a way to go... And because it was set in the 80s, there was the veneer of nostalgia, and it was a way to go and see powerless people fight an evil. You know, there's a reason why Wonder Woman and It were the two of the most successful movies of the year this year, because Wonder Woman gave us the idea that we could make a change, we had the power within us, and It was a place where we could go and scream in terror and let out that pressure that we feel every single day. That's, That's an interesting parallel that I didn't even consider. I think that for me, it really represented too. again, it goes back to genre symbolism, that moment of childhood lost innocence. Oh, yeah. When when, you know, when you lose your spiritual virginity, when you realize that life, the choices you make are the choices that you're responsible for. There's no one going to lay your clothes out and make lunch for you and tell you what to do. And that's a. That, that, that mental puberty mm-hmm. is something we don't talk about. And that's how I think so many 20, mid-20-somethings are so lost right now because they're told all their life they're special and the world owes them something. And they get out in the real world and they realize, oh, I'm not qualified or I have capable to deal with this stuff. And I get where the resentment comes from. I even understand those guys in Charlottesville last year. You know, all these blonde-haired white guys who were told they were special and got everything they wanted and they had parents who wanted to be their friends. Of course they're angry. I get why they're angry. But the solution to that is education. Right. You know, I I don't understand that we want to spend $25 billion building a wall that will never be built and never work when that money could send everyone to graduate school in this country twice and pay for health care. It doesn't make any sense to me that for me, I would rather have everyone be healthier and smarter than me because my life will be easier. I'll be able to get a robot body and I'll have a flying car. <laughs> oh, the goals. Anyway, I know we're going off track here, but the, but the real life horror is is why horror right now is, is experiencing a renaissance because oh, whenever there's a, a strong social issue, right. that's when you see that stuff, ha- the horror comes back and pivots the way it does. 
Right. And so to, to bring it back to it and that discussion of like why we can relate to that moment, as you put it, the loss of spiritual virginity, mm -hmm. the idea that our innocence is done. That's something that we as a culture really understand right now, because we're kind of looking at the before and looking at the aftermath. And, um, and we're a culture of extremes now. In everyday life, everything is black or white. Right. Everything is the best or the worst, whether it's and that's where the where I could, if I could go back and smother the guy who invented the Internet in his crib. I would go back in time and do that because the Internet has made everyone think their opinions are valid. Everyone reads the headline, but not the article. And we become a culture of false equivalencies where just because you have an opinion is not doesn't mean it's valid or worth respecting. It's a hyperbole echo, echo chamber always. Yeah. And, and most people are just regurgitating things they hear. They don't even have anything to back them up. It, right. it, I don't I don't like debating with people because I want to be right all the time. In fact, I don't I'm, I'm not right all the time. I like if you can explain to me whether it's about my work or whether it's about politics, why something works for you or doesn't. And you can explain it in detail. Right. That to me is interesting. If you if you just regurgitate sound bites, I just it's it's you know, it's like debating a four year old. You've already lost. Right. Well, speaking of four years old and bringing it back to childhood, mm -hmm. since we uh, began discussing how around you said th that three or four you started mm -hmm. reading comic books mm -hmm. uh, as well as you had seen Nosferatu as a child. And I'd also one of the early ones I remember is uh, Jack Palance and the Dan Curtis Dracula. Oh, I really like that version of Dracula. I do too, yeah. Uh, anytime multiple versions of Dracula get brought up on the show with guests, I always have to ask them if you have a favorite screen Dracula. Uh, Gary Oldman. Really? Yeah, I think that um, I have I have issues with the fact that he's going to win an Oscar this year for a movie he doesn't deserve it for. Um, he's going to get a body of work Oscar where Timothy Chalamet, if you haven't seen Call Me By Your Name, it's a performance that's going to be studied until long after we're all dead and gone. It was just masterful. But I thought... Um, he has been he's been in a bunch of great performances that weren't nominated and i thought his version of dracula was great because once again it made dracula the hero of that movie that's true because it was a tragedy you know it's a tragedy that he's that he lost that love and you know and as a fallen catholic him putting the, the, the sword and the cross at the beginning goes you know he did everything for god and god couldn't save his wife those are a lot of things that catholics have to deal with you know mm -hmm. We're told we have free will, but we're told when bad things happen, it's God's will. So which is it? Right. There's lots of inconsistencies and the character isn't consistent in the Bible. So there's lots of that. And I thought Gary Oldman brought a dignity and a tragedy to that that was missing from a lot of Dracula because he's a great villain, mm -hmm. but villains don't think they're villains. Yeah. Well, that's always that's always true. That's the difference between an arch performance of someone who's like twisting their mustache mm -hmm. and enjoying evil yeah. and the villain who doesn't think they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I like there's that's probably my favorite because the design work and everything. Right. But there, there almost every Dracula that's been done, with the exception of a couple, have great things in them. Right, Christopher Lee is my favorite. Christopher Lee's great. Bell Lugosi, I love that he was the bane of movies back then. The, that weird atonal performance because he didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> right, was great. Christopher Lee was great. Um, parts of the Frank Langella one are interesting because mm -hmm. it was the first time he was played really as sexy. So, you know, I, with the exception of like Dracula 3000 or whatever those, those Miramax ones were and uh, Dracula Unbound and stuff like that, that are right. just kind of like rebooting for the sake of rebooting. I think that the, there's a reason why that story, that character, I think is, is to this day still the most adapted character on film. Is that true? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. I assumed it, I assumed it would either be him or like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but Sherlock Holmes is number two, I think, but Dracula has had, Dracula has been on, adapted for film more times than any other character. I can see it. I mean, I wrote a Dracula movie, so I can't even say anything about it. But uh, well, Stephen King did Salem's Lot. He's Dracula. I just reread that, so I just finished it last night. So that's, that was <laughs> the first Stephen King book I ever read, and it scared the shit out of me as a kid. The first one I ever read was The Shining, and I did, and I did a book report for it in fourth grade at Catholic school. For fourth grade? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, my mom got called in by a nun 
<laughs> and the nun was like, um, did you know Mark read that book? And she's like, yeah, I bought it for him. <laughs> and uh, the nun was like, well, do you think that's appropriate? And my mom was like, well, was the book report well written? She said, yeah. She said, oh, yeah. Then great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, so since since you brought it back to childhood, um, <laughs> you connected with, with comics and horror. At what point did you know in your life you were more than a fan and wanted to start like writing within those worlds or like when did you know you wanted to write um i had no plans to be a writer um i started out wanting to be a comic book artist as a little kid and then realized that required a lot of discipline and a lot of time intensive work and then i you know uh, and then in my teen years i did a lot of community theater and decided i wanted to be an actor and i was in, you know the the show moonlighting really kind of inspired me to go into the because if you haven't seen it look it up the the there's there weren't a lot of seasons of it, but every every one hour show on TV right now has DNA from Moonlighting. Um, it was it is in a lot of ways the Citizen Kane of television mm-hmm. because you know so much stuff wouldn't exist without it. I mean, they did a, they did an episode in an iambic pentameter. They did a black and white episode that was the last thing Orson Welles did. I mean, they did it, it was crazy. But then I went to college and was you know majoring in theater, and of course everyone starts out acting, and then I directed something, and then I realized oh I really really like this. And I would never subject myself to another director because once you do that, you know, yeah, you know, there are people I trust that I would do that for. But and then I realized too that I was just, I was just a competent actor. Right. I couldn't. I don't. I don't understand how actors can do sixteen weeks of a show or sixteen years of a show I, after two weekends. I'm like, we've done it six times. We proved we can do it. I'm bored. <laughs> um, and then I just started having story ideas, and I was going to start giving them to friends of mine who were writers, and then I realized that would ruin friendships because I would micromanage them. I'm like, I'm just going to I'm just gonna write it myself and see what happens. Right. And then somehow I hoodwinked people into thinking I know what I'm doing and cut to 25 years later in the comic book world and sold a bunch of screenplays and all that stuff. And, you know, it's... So from writing and directing theater, when did you make your first move to do a comic book? Um, my first comic book, uh, my first real comic book, I did a dialogue polish on an erotic book called Mara of the Celts, and it was written by this uh, trans artist, and uh, it was sort of a fantasy foot fetish thing, because, you know, when you think female foot fetishes, you think Mark Andreco. Um, right, sure. Uh, and, but my first real comic book where I was actually contributing and not just doing a dialogue polish was a Doctor Strange book with my friend P. Craig Russell, who's a acclaimed artist writer he's adapted oscar wilde's fairy tales the wagner's ring cycle he's mm-hmm. doing american gods now adapting the novel and he had done this dr strange book in the 70s and he wasn't happy with how it turned out because they changed the ending and he had a writer put on it and he was supposed to write it and i said to him in 1992 i said why don't you call marvel and do the director's cut do the end redraw the ending and do what you want so that's a good idea so he called marvel and i hadn't seen him for a week and i went over to his house and i said so what, what's going on he's like oh we're doing the book when can you start right. so i said what he said, well, you're writing it with me. I'm like, what? So it was sort of like being, you know, Rita Hayworth at the Schwab's candy counter. I don't like telling people that story because I got this. My first real gig was with one of the preeminent artists in comics for a Marvel Comics special expensive comic book. So right. I, I lucked out and then got approached by other editors and then started having ideas. And a lot of comic book professionals lived in Kent, Ohio, where I went to Kent State University. And it just sort of, I wasn't looking, but then the offers came in and it was a way to subsidize the rest of my life and be able to work on movie, you know, low budget movies for no money. And then it suddenly became a thing. Right. So you started writing comics in Kent. Yeah. I went to Kent state, by the way. Did, did I know that? I don't know that you did. That's crazy. Yeah. I, uh, I, I love all the colleges and universities in the world. You walked into this one. Yeah. You walked into this one. 
Um, I and I got my master's degree there. I have to say, I, I think of Kent fondly during these months, especially because it was so cold there. Yeah, have you been back? Uh, I have not. I, my, it is insane how beautiful it is there now. The city finally got over its PTSD from 1970 and realized they were losing tens of millions of dollars by not having stuff for the students. Right. And there is there is so much stuff there that the, the sports teams are good. They redid a lot of the school. The school is actually really, really great now. There's all sorts of stuff in the, in the in town, restaurants and clubs and hotels. It, it's, it's like, why wasn't it this cool when I was there? <laughs> I had a pretty good time. I have to say that um, I'm not really good about going back places. Mm-hmm. Like I sort of like let it go. My, my, my friend of mine who lives here in L.A., he goes back to Ohio frequently and checks it out. And I let him report. Yeah. I don't miss the winters at all. No. I, uh, in fact, you know, the fact that I'm wearing a T-shirt today in the middle of January makes me very happy. Yeah, I had to put on the air conditioning in my car on the ride over. (laughs) So, um, you had told me once that you wrote a Friday the 13th comic book. Yes. And I know that would be of great interest to our listeners. So tell me a little bit about that project. Well, Friday the 13th, my history with Friday the 13th is is the first rated R movie I ever saw in the theater. The first one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I remember I was, I was at the doctor. I had strep throat. I got the shot, and we went into the, the drugstore, five and dime, underneath, you know, the, in the lobby of the, the medical building. And there was an issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was like pre-Fangoria. Right. Uh, for the young people out there. When there used to be a newsstand was a place that used to sell collected paper pages called magazines. Um, <laughs> And um, it, had a, it had a photo of Jason from when he pops out of the, the, the lake at the end. And I, bought, I asked my mom for it, and I bought it. And, and in it, it was really weird. They basically did, told you the whole story of the movie. I knew everything that was going to happen. I had pictures and everything. And I begged my mom. I'm like, I want to go see this. I want to go see this. She said, well, depends on how you do on your next report card. And I got straight A's. So my mom took me to see it. And I knew that Jason was going to jump up at the end. So I got to watch everyone in the theater. And uh so there's a lot of nostalgia there. And the first two Friday the 13th movies in particular really feel like summer camp. You can smell the mildew. Yeah. You can smell, you can smell the, 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 the outhouse. You can, you know, it feels like a real, real camp. It feels almost documentary style. So when um, DC Comics and Wildstorm had the rights to Friday the 13th, I reached out to the editor, this guy named Ben Abernathy, who's still at DC. He's a wonderful guy. And I said, Ben, you have to let me do a Friday the 13th book. I said, I know what I want to do. He said, what did you want to do? So I wrote... Mrs. Voorhees' origin. So it was a two-parter called Pamela's Tale. And the framing device is Annie, when she gets picked up by the Jeep in the first movie. Right. Mrs. Voorhees is telling her life story as she's driving. And I, it, was, it was so much fun to do. And there were some things in it that I discovered that I, that I think are now considered canon that were just accidents. Like um, I, I, I discovered why Jason hates people having sex. It's not a moral thing. In my story, when Jason was at the summer camp, uh, and was assigned to the, the two counselors, he, he lost one of his counselors. He couldn't find where they were, and he heard her in the woods moaning in pain. And he went into the woods and saw her boyfriend having sex with her from behind and thought he was hurting her. Oh. So he ran over and started hitting this counselor because he thought he was hurting her, and the counselor backhanded him, and that's when he ran out onto the dock and jumped into the water and drowned. And, and you wrote that. And, yeah. and that's now canonical? I, I believe so, yeah, yeah. And also, um, I, I loved um, doing... I had Mrs. Voorhees here. Jason talked to her when she was pregnant. She was nuts from the beginning. <laughs> I was just reading something last night because I'm supposed to guest on a Friday the 13th podcast later this week. And they had me watch Jason Goes to Hell and I haven't seen it since oh. the 90s. My reaction is, it was the, it's the same. But oh. um, I was reading something where they're trying to uh, make some 
grandstanding claim that uh, the Necronomicon plays a bit in, in his history because it's in that film. Like Mrs. Voorhees read it while she was pregnant and blah, 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 blah. I don't really count the New Line ones. I don't either. I think it ends with Takes Manhattan. Because I don't even count that because I don't know how you get an oil tanker on a lake and the sudden how you get up the Hudson River. Lakes are surrounded by land. I, I, it just doesn't make any sense. It makes zero. Even, even in a Friday the 13th movie, I believe Jason is immortal. I don't believe kids are going to go on their senior trip on an oil tanker in a lake that somehow gets into a river. To New York City, no less. Yeah. I, I really would just like to know the geography of Camp Crystal Lake, yeah. that it has an inlet to Manhattan. And how far away is that? I've always wanted to do, I, you know, are you familiar with the Agatha Christie, Ten Little Indians? Yes. I've always wanted to do, and I pitched this when the, the rights were still out there for comic publishing. I pitched that I wanted the survivors from the first seven movies to all get invited to an island, and they all start getting killed. Oh my God, that would be great. And you find out the murderer isn't Jason. It's the redheaded guy who was the stand-up comedian in part two. Because he survived, he stayed at the bar that night. That's right. And he tried to have a stand-up career, and he couldn't get a career because everyone always asked him about the Friday about Crystal Lake. So he went crazy because he was pigeonholed into that. He was started killing people. So who beats him at the end of this? Tina. Tina. Oh, because she's got the power. Tina and Amy Steele. Yeah, it's got. I like that we just have foregone calling her Ginny. Every guest does this when it comes up. She's just like Amy Steele. Amy Steele is the superhero. Amy Steele is great. I love Amy Steele. I love that second movie a lot. Although it is funny. I love that we, we establish her as a, um, she's studying child psychology and she's at the bar and she's like, what if he is just a crazy retard? I'm like, oh, is that, is that the technical term you learned for your, your PhD? Yeah. Well, I mean, it does, it does show the great amount of research that was done in the scripting of all of the Friday the 13th movies. And Friday the 13th part two had something that really, I, th I think that was one of the things that helped me realize I was gay. Mark, the guy in the wheelchair. He was hot. Yeah. And he, um, he, um, was gorgeous and he actually died of AIDS pretty early on in the AIDS crisis. There's a documentary he did called Life and Death on the A-List that you can stream online really, really. Young people, especially young gay people today should watch that because what young people don't get when we were kids, and I'm older than you, but when I was a kid, when I was 12 or 13, I thought, oh, I'm gay. I'm going to get AIDS. Right. And people were getting it and you were having the sniffles one day and two months later you were dead. dead. You know, it was very much a holocaust. There's a whole entire generation that is missing. You know, I have friends who are 10, 15 years older than me who went to literally 700 funerals in three years. Everyone, they, and we didn't have a reliable test for it until the mid-90s. Right. You know, so now that it's a treatable condition, which the pharma companies love, they don't want to cure anything because it's better to keep you on drugs. It costs $50,000 a year. It's really fascinating because I see all these kids, you know, things like PrEP and stuff are great. But now there's outbreaks of syphilis and gonorrhea that are resistant because you don't want to put a condom on. Right. And sex is great, but I've never had an orgasm that lasted as long as a really good meal with my friends. There, I want that embroidered on a pillow. You know, and, and you know, I, I have my own issues. I was raised Catholic, so I have my own issues. You know, I really related to Sinead O'Connor when she said, you know, it's really hard for me to have sex with someone I love because I was told sex was dirty. I get that. Right. I joke, my issues aren't issues. They're bound leather volumes. <laughs> but it's just, it's just interesting to feel so much older than a lot of young gay people now because they really don't remember the history because there's no one there to teach them. And we live in a world where the news cycle is so fast and people don't keep things in their right. head. They keep it in their phone. And I think a discussion that isn't had enough, while something like PrEP is wonderful, uh, it also, because of the instant social media culture we live in, and we assume it's a air quotes fix, and, and you know, in addition to the issues that you said, there are resistant strains of other STIs that are arising. I'd rather have HIV than the uh, resistant form of syphilis, because HIV, you can live 30, 40 years with it. Syphilis, 
Does anyone remember watching Victorian movies? It eats your brain. That's true. Yeah. You know, that's not a good way to die. But the other thing that's happening is, is people use it as an excuse to ignore history. Oh, and I also was never one of the gay guys that was defined by where I put my dick. Right. You know, I was, I would have been back if I was an adult back in the eighties, I would have been there saying, close down these bathhouses. Right. Because whatever you want to do in your own house is fine. But bathhouses were regulated by the health department. If a McDonald's got one millionth of people sick as bathhouses did, they would have been shut down. And being sex is a, a huge part of who we are as humans, but it's also an utterly insignificant part of who I am. And I don't like to define myself just by the fact that I'm attracted to men. There's so much more to people than that. And I think that I get it because p that time period, it was the furtive meetings in parks and there was, you know, all that sort of craziness. But I just wish I just wish we weren't such a Victorian culture. Where right. we, we, we say, oh, no sex, please. We're American. And then we go home and watch, you know, women in high heels step on bugs to get off. You know, it's just it's just crazy. If we talked about sex, it's not going to make people have sex. It's going to be people are going to be more aware. Do you think because America, as opposed to most European countries, we, we still treat nudity and sex and sexual acts as taboo? It leads to more of the repressed behaviors. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the Internet has helped. I think what might have been a passing thought years ago, like if you were, you know, if, for example, when you were a baby, you played underneath the kitchen table while your mom and her friends were playing cards and you got a fetish for high heels. Right. Now, if you saw, once again, going back to the, those crush videos, which are crazy that those happen, people, you know, watching women in high heels step on mice and bugs and stuff. That's a thing. That's a real thing. I mean, I'm not surprised it's a thing. But, I'm just learning that it's a thing. But that <laughs> would have been back in the day, an ember of something in your brain that would have gone out. But now that ember, you're like, I'm going to look that up on the internet. And there's 3 million oh, that's websites of things. So I think it's made people more fetishistic mm -hmm. and has, has made things a lot more difficult in the war, in the world, as far as sexuality and the dark part of it and all that sort of thing. It's once again, you know, the older I get, I always joke I should run for political office because I will tell you everything about me. I will overshare. I just don't, you know, I don't have anything really to hide. I've done stupid stuff in my life and stuff I regret. Right. But I've really been lucky that I've had parents and, and friends and colleagues who are like, don't regret things. Change. Learn from them. Right. You know, there are, because all, all those things change. You know, I actually, General Norman Schwarzkopf, a Republican general who was in there in the Gulf War, once said he didn't learn to be a good general from serving under good generals. He learned to be a good general serving under people that were idiots. And that's the truth of life. You success is success is deceptive. Success yeah. is a, success is fleeting. The, the 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 struggles you face in your career, whatever your career is, define you and make you a better person and make you better at your job. That's why so many of these young actors and young stars who suddenly are millionaires when they're 19. They go crazy. They go crazy and become yeah. drug addicts or commit suicide or leave the business because there's no one there. To, everything is everything is accessible to them. It's the same with people that inherit wealth, the Hiltons and people right. like that. You earn your money great. J.K. Rowling, um, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they all earned their money. Right. But their great-grandchildren don't deserve to be billionaires. Right. Because that teaches them nothing. Because that's why they're all on heroin and that's why they're all doing these things and robbing banks and stuff. Because they want to feel. And it takes such extremes for them to feel. And that's part of the internet age, too. I look at it, you know... Back in when I was a kid, I would go to bookstores and old record stores and find an album that I liked. Oh, this group has 12 albums. I can buy one a week. The Quest was part of it. Right. Patton Oswalt wrote a thing about now everything is available at all times. Right. You know, there was a toy I had as a kid and I said, I'm going to look this up on eBay. Maybe I'll get one. And there were 500 of them for sale. So now I don't have to get one because I know they're always there. Right. And, and the, the accessibility of everything immediately and even with food. 
seasonal foods. When I lived in Ohio growing up, we couldn't get blueberries in February. I remember pomegranate season. You'd be like, oh, my God, it, yeah. I can get pomegranates at the grocery store. And now we can have everything we want when we want it. If we don't get it, it's a tragedy. It's just mm -hmm. it's just. No, I think that you hit uh, a nail on the head, too, especially in the creative space about failure being so key. There's no shame in failure. No, there shouldn't be. Because failure defines, uh, not only does it define successes, but it helps you improve as an artist and as a person. Absolutely. I was just speaking, I was invited to speak at Michigan State University, and I said to the kids in one of the theater classes, I said, you're here. I said, I'm here because you're paying for this. Right. My, my friend who's a teacher, you're paying them to be here. You're here. Fail spectacularly while you're here. Right. Do things that you wouldn't want to, that you wouldn't be, that you'd be afraid to do as an adult. When I was 19 at Kent State University, the first full play I directed was Oscar Wilde's Salome. I had 19 actors. 10 of them were naked. There was a beheading on stage. There was a prosthetic head. There was original music. There was nudity and gore. And now I wouldn't direct that play. Right. Now that I'm 25. <laughs> Almost times two. Um, but that's what you're there for. You're there to learn. We shouldn't be afraid. You should because those 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 spectacular failures helped shape me and help shape you. Right. No, I mean, I, I talk to screenwriting students a lot and they'll ask, Well, how do I sell this? How do I like and sometimes it's trial and error. You have to go in and you have to be turned down sometimes because it's gonna Most times. Most times. Well, I'm sure that the same is true of everything that you've written. The the times that you were turned away on a project. I guarantee made you go back to the drawing board and made you stronger for what oh, you did. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a project that I'm doing that'll be announced soon that I'm doing that I wrote the original pitch for it in 1993. And now what? 25, 25 years, years later. later. That's the essence of failing upwards. You, you know, I, I just, am, I'm at a place now that I've been doing this for 25 years and I've been fortunate enough to have people respond to my work. Right. That, you know, branding is everything in today's society. And now now people will take my phone calls and return my phone calls and stuff like that. Not that they ever didn't. It wasn't quite right. the, the sinister like the, how Hollywood can be. But it's also, too, once you turn 40, there's a great, a friend of mine said, there's a thing that genetically happens when you turn 40 that I don't give a fuck switch goes off. And it, he said, and it's not a negative thing. Right. But now in my 40s, I, I now know why so many men in their 40s work in Hollywood because we've been here long enough. We've made, we know enough people. And we know what we're good at and what we're not good at. Right. And also talk, circling back and we can get back into the horror of this because I don't want this to become some like TED Talk seminar on inspiration <laughs> and like well, Oprah. It's, it's uh, dead for filth. So it's a dead talk. Well, uh, yeah, nice. <laughs> but um, where was I going with that? Now I, I lost my train of thought. So I guess we'll talk about something else. <laughs> uh, well, if you think about it, we can we can cycle back in. But what I uh, since we're talking about horror, we talked about Friday the 13th, mm -hmm. the comic book. Uh, and we talked about projects that sometimes were long gestations. Uh, a project I want to ask you about because it's the intersection of horror and other kinds of writing mm -hmm. is Torso, which mm -hmm. you did with Brian Michael Bendis, because yeah. that's based on a true crime. Is yeah, it absolutely. Not? It's based on in the 1930s after Elliot Ness left Chicago. And Elliot Ness was 27 when he left Chicago, mm -hmm. so he was a baby. And unlike the, the Untouchables, where he he never dropped anyone off a building or fired his gun or any of that. Right. When he came to Cleveland, he was made the city safety director, and he did things like put the first traffic light in a major metropolitan intersection where 400 people died a year. He was in charge of the fire department and the police department. And while he was there, this Cleveland was starting to rebound from the Depression, and people were hundreds and thousands of people would come in on the trains every year and live in this shantytown. And while he was there, one of the first serial killers in the country started murdering people, and most of them never got identified because they just came in. And it was the case that kind of ruined Elliot Ness because whereas he manipulated the press to make him a folk hero in... 
the Untouchables, 85% of the Untouchables is fiction. Whereas what we did, we condensed the timeline and made it a little bit more cinematic, but it was this was 85% fact. I mean, Elliot Ness did use the first lie detector on this case. Wow. You know, Hitler did comment about the torso killer, saying that those are the kind of madmen that Western decadence breeds. Cut to five years later and the joke's on Europe. Um, there was all sorts of crazy stuff like that. So we fictionalized it a little, but it was it is a, a true crime horror story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do have to interject with a, a comic question about a, another character mm -hmm. that you've written. You mentioned that Elliot Ness used the first lie detector. Mm -hmm. Is it true that the man who invented the yes. lie detector created one? Yes, Woman? William Moulton Marston invented the polygraph machine. That's amazing. That hence the lasso of truth. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and there had been talk for a while, and uh, maybe I'm just not up on my reading, that you and Brian Michael Bendis were looking to make Torso into a film. Oh, we've, we've, it's been optioned a bunch of times. It's been optioned a bunch of times. Uh, it was greenlit for 12 hours with David Fincher and Matt Damon. Matt Damon, Gary Oldman, Rachel McAdams, and Casey Affleck, I think, were the four. Wow. And then, you know, as Hollywood is... Things, nothing is guaranteed. You know, even Steven Spielberg has had movies that go away that right. don't get made. Um, it was recently re-optioned by Paramount. Um, there's a couple, there's been a script written. Um, we're still waiting to hear about who is going to be attached and who's going to do it. But, you know, luckily for us that, you know, it's why I don't, when I write specs, I also base, I also do a comic book. So I own the intellectual property. That's really smart. You know, because I always say if you write a spec, it's like putting your kids into foster care and finding out they got adopted by the Gacy's. <laughs> you know, with Torso, Brian and I control it. When right. the option expires, it comes back to us. And, you know, if 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 the param if it doesn't work out at Paramount, we've we've had people ask us about TV, you know, doing it as a serialized mini for like an, a Netflix or something like that, which I think would be great. That would be awesome. Um, I think it's you know, there's so much richness in in this story. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's it I've it it's paid a lot of my bills over the years. Maybe the option of it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. But I would really like to see it get made because I think it's a really fascinating story. And it's one of those stories where the, the stuff that seems the most fake and movie are, is actually the real stuff. And it's interesting because it does tie back in a little bit to what we were talking about, the need to fail in your career, to learn and to succeed and to move forward. And you just told a story about how this project that you created has in various ways, like taken steps forward and taken steps back. But you found a way within the context of that mm -hmm. to still succeed, even when sometimes it doesn't. And well, I think that's really interesting. Well, you know, I, you, you know this in the movie business. I always joke when I have a production company, it's probably going to be called Baby Sea Turtle Productions. Because getting a movie made, like those documentaries about the Galapagos Islands where the narrator is like, 3,000 turtles hatch, two survive to adulthood. <laughs> that's... That's, That's the making truth. movies, yeah. You know? It's the hardest thing, I think, for people to get, especially in, uh, like, extended family when they ask what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well, I'm doing this, 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 and this. Like, I've got nine projects mm -hmm. out in the world. And if one happens, yeah. it'll be a miracle. Because in the world of the nine-to-five job, if you're working on nine things... By and large, they usually all happen. Yeah. But that's not how film works. That's not how publishing works. No, it's not at all. I mean, I wish I could get hit on the head and want to be a plumber or a mortician or a, a, own a bar because because I have a distinct amount of envy of people who on Friday, they can put the closed sign in the door and not think about their job on the weekend. It's true. As writers, we're always working and we're never at work at the same time. 
I, there's not a day that I'm not working, and there are many nights that I don't go to bed without getting back up to write one more thing down. Yeah, it happens frequently. And but like, would I ever be a good CPA? I wish, but I wouldn't. No, I couldn't. I had yeah. a nine to five job out of college. I worked at a talent agency, and after after I had done everything I could to squeeze every drop of interest out of it, I realized I had to leave. Mm-hmm. I have a I. I I, my dad doesn't really understand what I do, but I don't understand how he worked at Blue Cross right. for 37 years. And I, I, that's not a slam of that because whatever makes you happy and whatever your life is, I don't want everyone to like everything I like, but it is a fascinating life. And, you know, luckily for us, no jobs are safe anymore. So us doing True. this isn't anywhere. You know, I have friends who are doctors and lawyers who have trouble getting jobs. Well, I would rather fail at what I love than fail at something I don't. I was lucky. My parents always said to me for as far back as I can remember, do what you love to do. Don't do it for us because God willing, you'll be doing it long after we're gone. And if you're going to be poor, be poor and happy. That's true. So we talked a little bit about Torso and Friday the 13th. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about when you take on in the world of comic books, you're usually, with the exception of a creator driven Mm -hmm. project like Torso, stepping into a world of established characters. And even with something like Friday the 13th, people know Pamela Voorhees. They know Jason. These are characters that are embraced. But when you write someone like Jason Voorhees or Pamela Voorhees or Wonder Woman, Mm -hmm. Betty, Veronica, Harley, you know, Ivy, I'm sure now you're, you're used to it, but is there anything intimidating or like, I don't want to, obviously there's a sense of responsibility, but what is it like to step in and know like, okay, I have this like responsibility. Is it intimidating to take on a character that has so much mythology or so much fan force behind it and knowing that you have to kind of carry that torch? Um, yes and no. Um, it's intimidating in the sense when you, when you get a gig, but at this point in my career, I only reach out and try and go after things that I think I have something to say. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily something profound to say, but I think I can capture a character's voice. Right. And in some ways, doing stuff like that is like being on staff of a TV show or being hired to write a sequel. It Knowing what I can't do frees me. You know, the metaphor I always use is when you can do whatever you want, you're like a kid in a candy store. And if you go right. to a candy store and you can have whatever you want, you get paralyzed because there's too many choices. But if I take you into that candy store and I say, you can have whatever you want from the lollipop aisle. Okay, right. I can, I can, I can pare that down. So knowing that there are certain things that are need to be in a Wonder Woman story, or that Pamela Voorhees has to sound like this or that, is actually freeing. It allows you the rules. Once again, counterintuitively, free you. It's the same thing with like kids and puppies. Kids like rules. Puppies like rules. They, you know, the more rules they have, the more they can be themselves because right. they don't have to worry about that stuff. And for the for the most part. I don't take gigs anymore that I don't think I have, that I don't think I can do. Right. You know, there has to be a reason to do it. And, you know, money can be the reason, but no one's ever met my price. Like, I'll write Police Academy 9, <laughs> but I'm going to need five or six zeros, you know. Uh, I would love to see Police Academy 9 written by you, to be honest. Um, it would all take place at the Blue Oyster Bar. But Okay, so spinning off. <laughs> yes. Look it up, kids. That's the movie I want to see. Uh, and Steve Gutenberg would be in it. Yeah, I worked with Steve Gutenberg on a sci-fi channel he was, movie. He used to be so sexy. Uh, can't Stop the Music. He's just a button. Yeah, like Can't Stop w- the Music should be called Patient Zero the Musical. I mean, oh, that's, that's the gayest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, outside of Police Academy 9, because you said something in there that I thought was interesting, and I have three questions based off of it. Uh, if you could write a sequel to any movie, mm-hmm. legitimately, mm-hmm. what what film would you like to write a sequel to? 
uh, a sequel and established continuity, not a reboot, just a sequel? Sure, yeah. Uh, a sequel of, to any movie, horror movie? Yeah, or, let's do horror. Okay. A sequel to any horror movie. Um, I would love to do a sequel to the original Howling. Okay. And base it on the novel because the the novels of Howling one and two are great. Uh, then the you know the that that franchise got commandeered, but the original, I like those a lot. Um, I would say The Exorcist, but The Exorcist TV series has been so gloriously great that I don't think I could compare to that. It's very underrated, but it's it magnificent. Is, it is so underrated, and you know that reveal in the first season of Gina Davis made me go back and watch the first eight all, all over again, knowing that. Um, and if you haven't watched it, if you like horror, do yourself a real solid and watch both seasons. Both seasons were spectacular. I can't believe it was on television. Um, I would love to do a Friday the 13th, but I don't want to do a sequel. I want to do, I would love to do, I know how I would expand my Pamela's Tale story right. to do, you know, I want to do that. And I want Charlie's Theron to play Pamela Voorhees. I love that. I've always wanted to write a Friday the 13th sequel, but I want it to be in the vein, sort of what you mm -hmm. were talking about. With the with the Agatha Christie thing, mm. I want to bring back some of those women because, yeah. with the exception of Adrian King's Alice, who we know what her fate is because of the beginning of part two, every survivor of each of the films just leaves. Yeah. So they're all out there, and the idea that Ginny is a psychiatrist in the world after like thirty years of like trauma and grief counseling, have, surviving this—that's mm. an interesting character to me. Yeah, I think Ginny would kind of be similar to Sigourney Weaver's character in Copycat. She might be agoraphobic at this point. Yeah. Because. Jason hasn't come after her, but Jason's still killing people every couple of years. And hearing that over and over again is going to instantly bring you back. You know, whenever you experience a tragedy and a similar tragedy happens again and again, you know, I, my best friend in college died in a plane crash in New York City. So for years, every time I saw a plane crash thing, I was back to that moment when I found out he died. And so the, there is that interesting level of PTSD, which you can explore that in horror and not make it necessarily nutrition horror. Right. We're telling a story, but those things play a play a part in it right you now it's why i hope the, the halloween thing they're doing i hope it's good although i hear they're getting rid of Lori being michael's sister yeah they're uh from what i understand they're retconning the entire mythology and it's just the first movie and then this movie and i don't know how that's going to work i hope it works i hope it's good that first movie is one of the best horror films of all time absolutely so another question that I wanted to ask based on what you were saying earlier, you said that now you don't take on characters that you know you can't do the voice for. Who would you say of characters you've written is the hardest voice to get into? Gosh, there's been so many so many books I've written over the years. I would say um, Wonder Woman. Yeah? Yeah, because, because there's so many different permutations of her. Like doing Wonder Woman 77, I could find that voice fairly easily because I that was... When I was a kid, we had reruns of the Batman TV show, the Incredible Hulk TV show, and Wonder Woman. There weren't right. seven billion dollar movies every six months. Right. Um, and Linda Carter portrayed that character with such a specificity that that was not easy. But I had a, gu a guide map. But writing Wonder Woman in the regular DC universe, when I, I wrote her in an issue, a couple of minis, uh, a series in Manhunter, because the character I wrote, the Manhunter character I created, she was a, a, a lawyer, a federal prosecutor, and then she was representing Wonder Woman. And I was really nervous to write Wonder Woman. And once I started writing, I was like, oh, I get her. People overthink her. She's not a complicated, difficult character to write, but it's hard to write someone. That's why I think the movie captured it so well. Someone who doesn't really know the intricacies of the man's world, but isn't naive. It isn't stupid. Right. She's incredibly smart, but she doesn't know these things. And I think that was really hard to find. And Wonder Woman is one of the only superheroes and maybe the only superhero who isn't her origin isn't tied to tragedy. That's true. Hulk, Spider-Man, the X-Men, Batman, Superman, tragic events define them. 
She was created manifested by the love of her mother brought her to life. And Wonder Woman isn't rescuing us. She's helping us realize that we have that power within us. Yeah, I've never thought about it before, but Wonder Woman's goal is one of the truly virtuous ones. Yeah, she doesn't want to use violence. She will only use violence as a last resort, something our police should learn. Um, She doesn't want to. She will. The closed fist isn't what she reaches out with. She reaches out with her hand extended to help. And she will only use violence to stop greater violence. It's not her go-to thing. She takes no joy in it. No good soldiers or good warriors take pleasure in destruction. Destruction. So learning and finding your place to find Wonder Woman's voice. We know that uh, that was a character that that took a second, I guess, for you to, to find out. But then when you did, you got it. So that leads to my next question. Is there a character that you haven't written yet that you've always wanted to? Um, I've got to do, even if it's brief scenes of things, you know, I would love to do an arc on Spider-Man because I learned how to, you know, there's such a nostalgia for that character mm-hmm. and it was so important in my early years. I would love to write some X-Men stuff, but X-Men from like when I was a kid, like the, the burn Claremont X-Men and the less encumbered by continuity. It's, um, I think those are really interesting characters. I would love to do, well, the, I've got stuff in the works for some characters I never thought I would get to write. And of course... You know how NDAs are in this industry. You, of course. You would think that I was smuggling nuclear fission materials. <laughs> you sign this and don't talk about it. And I'm like, 20,000 people read this. It's, no one's calm down. But I've been very fortunate. There are some characters I would like to explore more. Right. Um, but it's 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 a matter of, you know, sometimes the ones that are suggested out of left field to me, and my instant reaction is, hmm, I don't know if I have anything to say. Then when I find it, I get, I'm like, oh, now I get it. You know, I, I wrote a Nightwing annual years ago, and I would love to write more Dick Grayson because I think he's a really fascinating character. I'm like way back into the world of Nightwing. Maybe it's because Midnighter is also way back into the world of Nightwing, but I love that whole thing that happened recently. Uh, and that might already be a few years ago yeah. because I'm always behind. You know how it is when you're writing. You're always like behind on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we've started talking about heroes, and I want to talk about something that I think was really heroic, uh, and it was your work on Love is Love. And could you talk a little bit about that project? Because I think that's something that my listeners would be very interested in. Sure. Um, uh, After the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting happened, that that Friday night or Saturday, I went to bed and heard there was a shooting at a nightclub. And I'm like, oh, a shooting in a nightclub in America. It must be a day in America. Right. And the next morning I woke up and saw how many people had been killed and just the, the scope and the magnitude of that tragedy. And it really gave me a little PTSD to back in the height of the AIDS crisis when, when people were dying simply because of who they were. And my instant reaction was I was a child of the 80s. I grew up with We Are the World and Live Aid and Comic Relief and Hands Across America. And I, my instant just reflexive reaction was, as an artist, as a creator, I have something to say. I need to process my own grief and horror and sadness about this. And I just said on Facebook, hey, does anybody want to do a charity book? I'll organize it. And then my friend Paul Dini, the co-creator of uh, Harley Quinn and his wife, said, hey, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, this is really rough. And it was Gay Pride Weekend here. And they said, well, let's, right. go, let's go to Gay Pride. And I haven't been to Gay Pride in a dozen years because I'm just not the club guy. I don't have abs and, you know, I don't like house music. So I was like, right. I just, it's just not my thing. And we went and I, it was really great to go to Gay Pride that day to feel defiant, to not be. And I got home that night and there were 70 messages from creators saying I'm in. Wow. And then Diane Nelson, who is the president of DC Entertainment, reached out to me and said, 
whatever you need, we want to publish it, you can use our characters. And my friend Chris Ryle, who was the publisher at IDW, reached out. And then I was like, oh crap, I guess I'm doing a comic book. And we did, in six months, a 144-page print book that included DC's characters, Archie characters, Will Eisner's The Spirit, um, all sorts of characters. Uh, who else? All sorts of things. Oh, J.K. Rowling, let us use Harry Potter. Jim Lee, who's the preeminent artist of comics and the co-publisher of DC, drew... Ron, Hermione, Harry, and Dumbledore raising their wands and making a rainbow flag. And, I, and Miss Rowling let us use a quote from the book. That's the first time and probably the only time Harry Potter is ever going to appear in a comic book. Wow. And just because of the momentum it took from from my posting that Facebook post to the, the, the publication date was six months. Six months with over 500 creators, two editors, Jamie Rich at DC Vertigo and Sarah Gatos at IDW who worked for free, who were frequently, who edit between 10 and 20 titles a month were there until three and four in the morning for weeks upon end volunteering their services. Uh, you know, I got to be on Seth Meyers to promote the book. Uh, and, and, you know, Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman and Monster, wrote the introduction because she had done Monster in Orlando. I believe she had been to that club before. And, you know, I wanted to do a book. I wanted to do something that it's really easy when a tragedy happens to write a check to the Red Cross. Yeah. And, and you're done. But I wanted something that was there. That would remind you, and I want, and I, and I have, you know, I have my opinions on gun control and mental illness in this country, but I didn't want it to be a, a strident book. I wanted it to be, why are you threatened by people being in love? Right. You know, to be loved and to love someone is something I wish for everyone. And I wanted a specific, you know, I wanted a mix of straight, gay, trans creators of color and all that. And the mix probably could have been a little bit more diverse, right? but it wasn't because we were turning people away. It was just with the, with the speed of the project. And I also wanted to make sure there were A-list names in it because I didn't want to be doing this in a vacuum. Right. I wanted people to pick this up and read this. Right. And the book came out and debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. We're in our eighth or ninth printing now. There were seven foreign versions that have been printed. The French version sold out in a week. I was just in Brazil for the the release of the Brazilian version. Oh wow! Um, it's, it's it's staying in print. We're gonna it, it, now every year we're giving the proceeds to a different charity. So the tra charity for this year is the Trevor Project. We gave two hundred thousand dollars to the people, to victims and survivors, to help ease their pain. We did an art auction. Um, it's been great. It's been great that the thing you know it won the Eisner Award. It won a, a a Ringo Award, which is a new comic book award for best anthology. Diamond Comics distributors gave it their anthology of the year it sold incredibly well and pe resonated with lots of people and coming up with the idea i i planted the seed but so many other people were responsible for the success of it and it was just really nice in an age when we're all so divided and everyone's yeah. so yes or no and black and white to see all these people come together and do this this project and you know i've i've had i've had such strange experience but i've i've, I've I know two two sets of the parents who lost kids, who thanked me for doing the book, and I'm like, how do you respond to that? You right. experience, you know, one one uh, kid's mom said she was feeling really bitter and really angry and isolating because it was her only child. She said the book was the first thing that made her smile since her son died. You're you're welcome. I mean that. Yeah. That's a privilege. If I can give someone one second of peace, right. I had a, a kid in Kansas reach out to me. In his email, he said that his parents were evangelical and he was gay and he could never come out and he was planning on killing himself. And then he read this book and realizes if he can get through high school, there are people that will love him. Okay. Right. You know, I was at Megacon in Orlando for, um, in last summer for the release, to celebrate the release and we had a live art auction. And this guy came up to me 
And this guy looked like, I joke, he looked like if Florida was a person. <laughs> you know, he had like a PBR hat and this sleeveless thing and his teeth looked like a couple of miles of bad road. And I judged him. I'm like, okay, what's this guy going to say? Why'd you do this book about homos? Right. And he came up to me and said, you know, I wanted to thank you. I was like, what? He said, my, my little girl is gay and she came out to her mother, but she was afraid to come out to me until I gave her this book. And of course, I felt like an asshole for prejudging this guy. I mean, it's interesting when people who are parts of minority groups or oppressed groups are just as judgmental. And I will... Yeah. But it was glorious. This guy now has a relationship with his daughter. And I, I was peripherally a part of that. How lucky am how lucky am I to be able to to give anyone a moment of peace or a moment of of solace or a moment of empowerment? It, it's just been it's been a, it's been an absolute privilege. And I'm loath to talk about, you know, my contribution because I didn't do it for accolades and I didn't do this in a vacuum. Right. I didn't do this by myself. I'm not being falsely modest. I had the idea and I helped power it through, but it was so many people that, that won the Eisner. It was 500 plus people that right. won that Eisner, that share that Eisner with us. You know, it was, it was just so nice to be able to give something back because I, growing up, even as a gay kid, I had a very Norman Rockwell childhood. I never was suicidal about who I was. I was never thrown out of the house. You know, I didn't officially come out to my parents until Matthew Shepard had died because I wasn't dating anyone and I wasn't hiding anything and I was, right. you know, and I was sort of rationalizing. And my parents were like, as long as you're happy, we're happy. So I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility slash guilt for the Matthew Shepherds and for these kids who are homeless and for these kids that get kicked out of their families. I didn't have any of that. Right. I've been really, really, really lucky. So I need, I want to give back. It's, it's, it's important for everyone. And I talk about giving back in a small sense. A kind word can change the trajectory of someone's life. Right. There's a, a great story that moved, that continues to move me. It was, a, I believe it was about a year ago now, this kid was the valedictorian of his high school and he was giving his valedictory speech. And he said, you know, this is a story I've never told anyone. He said, my sophomore year, I believe it was somewhere, I was a Friday, I cleaned up my locker and I was leaving school and a bunch of jocks knocked my books out of my arms and were, you know, giving me shit and smacking me around. And another kid, another football player, really popular kid, Showed, shooed them away and gathered his books and he gave me a ride home and we became best friends. But what no one knew, and I'm trying to say this without crying, is what no one knew was I cleaned up my locker because I was going to kill myself that weekend and I didn't want my mom to have to come and do that. And because that kid was nice to him and gave him a ride, and his friend didn't know that until the valedictorian speech. Wow. So it's, I try and do something nice every day. You know, Sometimes just saying to someone, oh, you're that's a nice shirt. I like that shirt. Or, oh, you look really nice today. Or, oh, how have you been? You know, I, I, right. I really miss you. That can actually, absolutely, we have to be more proactive in life. And it doesn't mean volunteering at a homeless shelter 20 hours a week. It can be right. simply the old lady that lives in your building asked going to, to going to the grocery store for her or walking right. your neighbor's dog or, you know, saying something nice, to, engaging a little kid. It's very, it, if every single per able-bodied person in this country who could gave one hour a week of their time to anything. It can be raking your neighbor's lawn. It can be watering their plants. Right. It, can be, it can be going to a library and reading for kids. That would be over 125 million hours a week. Right. That's 1.2 billion hours a year. That could change the world. Right. And I don't mean to be Pollyanna-ish about it, but it's something that I have to remind myself of because even though this country is in a mess right now and it's mm. terrifying, being white in America or just being in America puts us so far ahead of so many other people that it, right. it, we, we should give back more. We, sh we should. Well, we often talk about how hate is infectious, but kindness can be too. But anger, I'm, I, 
anger it takes so much energy. Right. Physically, just smile mm-hmm. and then frown. You can feel it physically. There was a 70s in the day of the bumper sticker. There was right. a 70s bumper sticker that said, you know, it takes 12 muscles to smile and 75 to frown. I'm paraphrasing. And it's true. I'm just too lazy to be angry about things that don't matter. Right. I don't want to wake up and be angry, you know. I, I'm angry about the state of the world and the idiot that's running our country. But I'm not going to be angry that someone didn't tell me happy birthday when I saw them. Right. Let's, let's, let's contextualize things to get angry about. Right. Well, I think you know, this began with discussion of love is love and the idea of, of going out and spreading kindness and, and, and good in the world. And you and this group of artists came together and did something really beautiful that continues to, to spread good. Yeah, it's going li- to live long after I'm dead and buried, you know, and the, the foreign editions in the, each country, half of the proceeds are going to LGBT charities in those countries. That was very important to me that those were going. Well, and before we wrap things up, usually at this point when we would discuss work, I would ask how important it is to you as a creator to have queer representation and in the art that you do, but with a volume like Love is Love, you've proven that it's important. But I do have to ask, how in your time in the industry do you think queer rep- representation has changed? Well, it's changed substantially just because of of the the jargon, the terms, the the, the accessibility, the smallness of the world in this internet age. Right. Um, but circling back a little to representation, I am not, this is where I differ from a lot of people, I am not a representation at all costs person. Right. I, I tend to try and write characters who happen to be. Right. I don't try to put the adjective first because sure. I think the risk for at least me, when I put the adjective first, I end up writing didactic characters. Mm-hmm. And I write characters who happen to be. Because as I said earlier, being gay is a huge part of who I am, but it's also an insignificant part of who I am in equal right. measure. So I don't I don't approach characters as female characters or gay characters or black characters or Jewish characters. They're characters who happen to be. Those are all facets because we're all accumulation of things. Yes. Um, I get why people believe in representation at all costs being important. I, I don't I don't begrudge them that. And I understand that. That's just not where I come from as a, as a creator. Right. Um, but it's interesting to see, you know, because people ask, well, you know, I've been out my whole career in comics. I've never experienced any homophobia directly. I always say, I don't know what they say when I leave the room, but conversely, they don't know what I say about them when they are not in the room. <laughs> I've never experienced, if anything, DC Comics has been very supportive of LGBT characters before it was the the issue of du jour. Right. You know, if anything, I've had times where they said, could you gay it up a little more? You know, <laughs> um, you know, uh, not in any sort of pejorative sense, but in sure, the sense sure. of like, you don't have to be, you can make this character, you know, more of who they are. So I've been, once again, very fortunate. I don't have any horror stories to tell where I was, you know, mocked or, or you know, poked fun at or, or treated poorly because of my sexual orientation. Um, so I've been really, really lucky. But I think now that they, people realize that, that there are two kinds of people that read superhero comics. There are people that read it for the, the, the power fantasy and there are people that read it because of the, the secret identity. Mm hmm. You know, lots of straight guys read it because they're big buff guys who get the pretty girl. But lots of gay gay readers read them because superheroes are basically nude in those costumes, you know. Yeah. And it's a, it's an idealization of the body. And it's dealing with having an identity that you can't share with everyone. Right. So I think there's a real resonance there. And, you know, we're seeing lots of new creators. You know, we're seeing a bunch of trans creators come in. We're seeing lots of women of color come in, which is great because, you know, Diversity isn't something that is homogenizing things. The more specific a story, right. the more you can relate to it. You know, I have very little in common with the characters in Moonlight other than being gay. But somehow that movie resonated 
deeply right. within me. You know, I had very little in common with the characters in Call Me By Your Name. But that those the specificity of those stories, you know, things like The Color Purple, that's my favorite Steven Spielberg movie of all time, you know. And I'm not being, you know, um, argumentative by saying that. I love Raiders of the Lost Ark and I love Jaws, but if I could only have one Steven Spielberg movie on a desert island, I could watch The Color Purple every day. When I was 12 years old, I watched The Big Chill and I was like, oh, I relate to these people. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> so it's interesting that what the emotional core of something can yeah. can touch you in a way that the, the, the trappings aren't what it's about. It's about the similar shared thing. Right. You know, I have lots of friends. A lot of my straight friends love Call Me By Your Name more than a lot of my gay friends. And I'm like, I'm like, now you know how I felt watching romantic movies when I was a kid. Right. That you have to put yourself in there. It's not about what's below the belt. It's about what is the emotional truth here. And it's just really interesting to see that. And as tough as the world is, the gay civil rights learning curve is so much has been so much steeper and so much quicker than women's rights or African-American rights. And, you know, I never thought in 1993 that gay marriage would be the law of the land. One thing I like to ask every guest, since this show is all about the celebration of art and uh, film and, and stories, uh, and you just listed a bunch of movies that affected you mm -hmm. in different ways. Have you seen or read anything lately that has inspired you? Well, I do. I, I will go back to Call Me By Your Name. Mm -hmm. That inspired me because that Timothy Chalamet's performance in it will be studied for a hundred years. That per, I, I don't know how a 19-year-old plays something that free and that unfussy and that real and that idiosyncratic. And there were moments in that movie, much like in Moonlight as well, where I felt I had to turn away from the screen because I felt I was eavesdropping on something that wasn't, that was so personal. And I know I can never write something like that. That's definitely, you can see that that was definitely an, a, a European director's sensibility. Right. Um, Wonder Woman inspired me. I, I saw that movie 11 times in the theater. I haven't paid to see a movie 11 times in the theater since Back to the Future. Wow. Uh, I have a real, a really deep, visceral, emotional reaction to that movie. Uh, that, that's, that movie made me wish I had a daughter because it's literally, you, you, whether you like that movie or not, that movie is historically important because that movie, that movie didn't exist before that. We've had motion pictures for a hundred years and that was the first time you know, I've gotten to become friends with some people who worked on the movie, and I know Patty Jenkins, and I met Lucy Davis, and I said to Lucy, who played Atta Candy, and I'm like, you know, your 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 role is going to positively affect thousands of little girls' lives. She says, what do you mean? I said, because you were a woman of size in that movie, and never once were you the butt of a joke because of your weight, or right. demeaned because of your gender or your weight. In fact, you helped save them in the alley at one point. I said, whether they realize or not, there are a bunch of pudgy seven-year-old girls who are now going to not be have body dysmorphia. Right. You know, Wonder Woman, you know, one of the lines talking about things I couldn't write, when Wonder Woman says to Charlie, the 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 sniper who can't do it anymore, who's shell-shocked, he says, well, I'll just stay behind. And she says, well, then Charlie, who would sing for us? That sums up everything you need to know about Wonder Woman. Wow. I mean, I got goosebumps right now. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I love when I can see a movie or read a book and forget that I'm a writer because right. so much of the time, this is what we do. We're dissecting it, whether we want to or not. Yeah. And when I'm taken by the hand by a storyteller and I'm just immersed in that world, that stuff inspires me. Honest, honesty inspires me. Whether you're writing about aliens or whether you're writing about a nurse in the Korean War or, right. or a slave or a superhero, honesty is the thing that is that is the most important and that resonates with audiences they can they know when they can trust you they don't need to know everything every detail spelled out but right. they, but if you, they know that you know they'll go for along for the journey well and speaking of storytelling uh 
I know that you mentioned NDAs and there are things mm. that you can't talk about, but uh, what's next? What can we, what can you tell us? Um, well, I have a book out right now called The Further Adventures of Nick Wilson that mm. I co-created and co-writing with a gentleman named Eddie Gordetsky, who is a Emmy-winning TV writer. He co-created the show Mom. He's worked with Chuck Lorre since Dharma and Greg. He was a writer on Saturday Night Live, you know, and um, it's basically about a guy who, when he was 22, got superpowers and was a superhero for four years. Then his powers disappeared. Doesn't know how or why he got them or why they disappeared. Right. And now he's appearing as a Nick Wilson impersonator at kids' birthday parties. Wow. And he lives in a world, a regular, it's our world. He was the one superhero. There's no other superpowers or no other supervillains. And then he gets approached by his nemesis, this billionaire who is opening a Nick Wilson museum. And he wants Nick to be a greeter at the Nick Wilson museum. So it's the metaphor of a high school kid who gets drafted to play professional ball and then breaks their leg right. and they have no skill set. What do you do for your second or third or fourth or fifth act? I think they said recently that kids now will change their careers between nine and 11 times in their life. No wonder everyone's crazy. <laughs> when I was a kid, it was three. Yeah. When my parents were kids, it was two. You know, when my grandparents were like, it was one. That was what you did for the rest of your life. So I say it's much about this is much about superheroics as Cheers is about baseball. Right. It's a departure point. We're never going to tell his origin. We're never going to tell you why he got his powers or how he lost them. Right. That's insignificant. But it's a and that that just came out. It's five issues. That the first issue just came out from Image. Um, I'm finishing up Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica. That I'm co-writing with Paul Dini. I have a couple other mainstream projects coming out. Um, a couple pilots that I'm working on. You know. It's spinning as many plates as possible. You know, I have, right. we, as writers, we all have our books next to our bed with every project we want to do. And I've got so many that I would love to do that I'm never going to do them before I die unless I get nanotechnology and a robot body. Well, here's to hoping. Mark, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook and read all my liberal pinko political postings. So if you voted for Trump or you protest voted, please don't follow me because <laughs> uh, I will never forgive you. Um, and I'm on, I'm on Twitter as well. And I do, I do a couple of shows. I do the screen junkies show over at, um, defy media. And I'm part of the movie trivia schmodown, which is sort of like movie trivia competitions as pro wrestling. And that's super fun. And people, tons of people watch that stuff. I don't watch stuff on my phone or the internet really. Right. But like these, these shows get half a million hits, which is fascinating to me whenever I get recognized. I'm always like, why are you money? They're like, no, you're on the movie show now. <laughs> um, uh, and that's super fun. But yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'll do the big, I'm doing the big conventions this year. And if a couple of these projects, these big projects pan out and get announced, I'll be probably doing a little bit more appearing and stuff. So. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule, talking horror and comics and sure, everything Sure, I'm sorry we didn't talk about horror too much. I, I'm sure I'm, I'll be diverted from the road. And... I think we talked about all sorts of wonderful things that are going to be of interest, from Pamela Voorhees to Wonder Woman and beyond. And thank you so much for taking oh, time. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. I'd love to come back sometime. I would love to have you back. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone, edited by Drew Phillips.